Well, good morning, everybody at Maple Grove. It's a pleasure to be here this morning, and uh, it was a gorgeous drive up yesterday, and one of the coolest things about being here with you this morning is this has been such a welcoming and friendly experience for us. So I want to thank you for your hospitality. Um, I do come from Mid-Atlantic Christian University. We are heading into our 72nd year. Uh, we were established in 1948 as Roanoke Bible College, and we were uh, created to help train those who would go and serve in, in churches as ministers and missionaries. And uh, as we have changed over the years, the school changed its name to Mid-Atlantic Christian University, and we now offer 20 different majors, but everybody gets a good, solid foundation in biblical studies. You either major, double major, or minor in biblical studies because we believe that the Word of God is the foundation for a life built on the rock. Amen. And we want people's lives to be built on the rock, not on the sand. Uh, this morning I would invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be talking about running the race. How many runners are out there this morning? Come on, you got that 26 point, uh, what, 26.2 Sticker on the back of your car or the 13.1, 10K, 5K, fun run, one mile fun run. All right. You know, they do make a sticker you can put on the back of your car that says 0.0. <laughs> okay, I found you. <laughs> okay. We're excelling at that race, right? Uh, it's important for us to realize as Christians that we are all in a race. And this is a marathon run. It's not a sprint. So in Hebrews chapter 12, I'd like for us to read together verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart." In 1983, 150 world-class runners converged on Sydney, Australia for a grueling ultramarathon of 543.7 miles. The run was from Sydney to Melbourne, Australia. And on the day of that race and, and its commencement, a toothless 61-year-old potato farmer by the name of Cliff Young approached the registration table wearing overalls and galoshes over his work boots. At first, people thought, this guy's a nut. What is wrong with him? And then they decided, learned he was planning to run this race. But he was not a real runner. He was somebody that was raised on a sheep farm. And when there would be a storm that would be coming, his job was to round up all the sheep and to get them to a place of safety. The other people who were there were the real runners, and they knew exactly what they were supposed to do, and they had worked and prepared for this race, but not Cliff Young. They issued Cliff bib number 64, and he mingled with the other runners, and I thought, think that as 
The gun sounded. Everybody thought this is the last we'll ever see of Cliff Young. I'm sure as the gun went off, the the people who were watching this race begin were thinking, we'll never see or hear from this man ever again. Well, he had, and you can Google it this afternoon, Google the Cliff Young shuffle. He had a weird running style. I can only imagine it looked about like mine or worse, but they called it the shuffle. And uh, he went off and people, as they were passing him, the other 149 runners, I'm sure they got a good snicker as they went on by him. Well, five days, 15 hours, and four minutes later, Cliff Young came across the finish line in Melbourne winning the ultramarathon. He didn't win by a few seconds. He didn't win by a few minutes. The nearest runner was behind him almost 10 hours, nine hours and 56 minutes. Australians were stunned that Cliff Young had won this race. They thought, how in the world could this happen? He didn't know what he was doing. And that's exactly why he ran it. He, he did not know what he was doing. The real runners knew that you would run for 18 hours and you would rest and sleep. And then you'd get up the next day and you'd run for 18 hours. But Cliff didn't know what Cliff didn't know. And he just kept shuffling right along, going day and night, night and day, until he won the ultramarathon. He broke the previous record by over nine hours, and he became a national hero. I think if this shows us anything, any correlation to the Christian life, is if we're going to win in this Christian race, we have to run it with passion and zeal and energy and discipline, and we cannot give up, no matter how odd our shuffle might be. So as we break open this epistle to the Hebrews, we discover that something had happened to dull these Christians' devotion to Christ. And as the race of their faith went on, they lost their focus and began to turn aside and they began to get weary and to drop out of the race. And so Paul's entire purpose of writing this epistle is to challenge them and encourage them to continue their race and to win crossing the finish line. No wonder... This beautiful epistle seeks to renew the faith of believers by encouraging them to stand fast in their faith. And he compares the race of the Christian life to that of an ultramarathon. This morning, how can we be renewed and re-energized in our Christian faith so that we can run and not grow weary, walk and not faint? How can we persevere and finish the race and finish well? This morning's sermon has four points. They are not equally weighted because you're going to think it takes you forever to get through number one. And that is how sermons typically work. But uh, there are four points, and I promise I'll move through a couple of them very, very quickly. But the first one is pretty long. Uh, If we're going to run this race and win, we have to look around and see that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. One of the neatest things to me is when we become Christians, we are added to the body of Christ. And we don't have to run this race alone. There are no lone runners in this race. We have one another. Look to your left and your right, behind you, in front of you. These are people who are running the race with you. My guess is if there's something going on in your family and you need prayer, these are the people that you call on to pray for you. 
when you're in the hospital or you're at home sick, these are the people who come and support you and help you. I believe that's one of the most important things about being a part of the body of Christ. We have one another. We are not running the race alone. But I think we also have an inner witness to our faith. We have the inner witness of our Christian baptism. Hebrews 10 gives a strong call to the church to persevere in their faith. And I think he could equally take them back to what Paul had written to the church in Rome when he talked to them about remembering what had happened when they accepted Christ and were baptized into him. He said, don't you remember that that old person has been buried and a new person has been raised to walk in newness of life? Whenever you feel like you're getting discouraged, remember your baptism. Remember the day that you made a profession of faith and you were made alive with Christ and that your life became new through his blood. We also have the witness of the Lord's Supper. I don't think it's any accident that the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus in the garden and that the church was told to observe the Lord's Supper until he came back again. Because every time that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's a witness to the sacrifice of Christ on that cross. When we hold in our hands a piece of bread and we remember the words as Jesus instituted the supper, he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then he took the cup and he gave it to them and said, all of you drink from this cup for it is the blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. So every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are remembering that we are children of God and that Jesus said he would not take the Lord's Supper again until he took it with us in his kingdom. So those are two internal witnesses that we have to our Christian faith, but I think we also have a great cloud of witnesses past and present. Who challenged you? Who shared the faith with you so that you caught it? You learned it, and you made that profession of faith in Christ. I remember as a nine-year-old boy, a preacher by the name of Donald Boyer, preaching in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, preaching a gospel message. And that Sunday evening, I walked to the front of the church, and I placed my small nine-year-old hand in what seemed to be a hand this big. And I made a profession of faith that Jesus gave his life for me and that I was giving my life to him. And I accepted him that night as my Savior and my Lord. So I remember Donald Boyer who's gone on to be with the Lord. And so sometimes when I want to give up, when I get discouraged, I remember him. I remember my Aunt Eleanor who was one of the strongest influences in my life growing up. Aunt Eleanor had become a Christian and she attended the same church that we attended. And whenever I would start to veer a little bit off of the uh, straight and narrow path, she would give me a phone call or she would talk to me and she would encourage me to remember my calling. How many people have influenced and been a part of your experience and your relationship with Christ? I would say a lot. Elders, deacons, ministers, family members who have poured into you their Christian faith. They are a part of your great cloud of witnesses. And some of, our, of those in our great cloud of witnesses are still alive. Some have gone on to be with the Lord. And for those of you who have those people who are still alive, give them a call. Send them an email. Go by and visit them and let them know how they influenced you for the sake of the gospel. 
I think it's good for us to remember those in our great cloud of witnesses. Now, the scriptures give some people by name, and I'll just mention about three of those. There's David. David is a part of our great cloud of witnesses. You ever feel like you've sinned so much that God could not look at you and and love you anymore? David certainly could have felt that, and David went through a horrible depression after he was caught in his sin with Bathsheba. And yet, God did not turn his face away. He sent him a prophet, and that prophet told him a story, and David repented and turned back to the Lord. And we remember David today as a man after God's own heart because God can renew our hearts. God can restore us in our relationship with him. And sometimes we feel like we've blown it to the point that we're just never going to be loved and accepted by God again. That's not the case. God will always draw near to us when we draw near to him. You ever feel like you're going through a difficult time in life and that everything is stacked against you? Well, how about a person by the name of Job? Job suffered so much, and yet he finished well. When people said, Job, just curse God and die, Job said, no. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So sometimes we feel like life is stacked and unfair against us, and we are just you know, receiving all of the bad things in life. When you think that, remember Job. He's a part of your great cloud of witnesses. He persevered and he made it through. And he was able to be faithful to God. Do you struggle with having enough faith sometimes? How about Abraham? Remember Abraham was told by God, you're going to be the father of a great nation, the father of many nations. And uh, Sarah laughed. Neither one of them believed that they would have an heir. And yet Sarah found herself with child. and She gave birth. And Abraham believed and became the father of many nations. Sometimes I think modern day Christians feel like we don't have enough faith. We don't have enough faith like these big heroes of the faith. But in reality, how much faith did Jesus say was necessary? Faith as small as a grain of mustard seed, right? And then God can do great things through that little faith that we have. But what we want is for our faith to be growing because we know that we can depend on God more and more and more. So this morning I would ask you, who are the men and women who are cheering you on in this great cloud of witnesses? The people in your church family, your elders, deacons, teachers, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles. Just remember, you do not run this race alone. The second point from this passage of Scripture is throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles you. What's hindering you in your Christian walk? After 41 years of being an ordained minister, I have discovered that the sin that so easily entangles most of us are those secret sins that we think no one will ever know about. It's those secret sins of alcoholism and abuse and infidelity and pornography, white-collar crime and lying and greed and anger and covetousness and jealousy, things that nobody can see and know we keep secret and buried in our hearts. You see, David, after sinning with Bathsheba, tried to pretend that everything was okay, but it wasn't okay because God knew his heart. God knew what had taken place. Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts lied to the Holy Spirit about what they had given to the church. 
They were ready to live by a sham by lying about what they had given. Sometimes we find ourselves in the same way, just trying to not let God know what's really going on in our hearts, like he is not all-knowing, but he already knows. And so before we even do it, he knows the decision that we will have made. One of my favorite theologians is named Anonymous. He writes a lot. (laughs) But there's a quote that I, I just love. It says, sin takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. And that's what happens with those secret sins in our lives as it leads us off step by step until we are far away from God and and sin has enveloped us. So the question I would have for all of us this morning is what are the weights in your life that are slowing you down as you run this race with perseverance? Third, if we're going to win this race, we have to run it with perseverance. That means it's not going to be an option to give up. Perseverance is defined as steadfastness, constancy, endurance. And it's in the New Testament, it's characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. My eyes are on Jesus. When I think of perseverance, I think of Team Hoyt. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the videos of the Hoyt family. But uh, Dick Hoyt's son, Rick, was born in 1962. He was born with severe cerebral palsy. Doctors told he and his wife that they should institutionalize their son as he would never be anything more than a vegetable. But Dick and his wife could not bring themselves to do that. And they could see that as they looked in his eyes, there was something there that made him just like an ordinary little boy. Well, one day, Rick communicated to his family that he wanted to participate in a 5K charity run that would benefit a local athlete that had been paralyzed. Dick was not a runner, and at 36 years of age, he didn't think that he would be able to take his son on this 5K run. But he trained, and he took his son, Ricky, on this run and when he got done his son said when we're running I feel like I'm alive I feel like I'm normal and since that time they have competed in over 1,108 endurance events they have done 72 marathons 8 Ironman triathlons and a 3,375-mile coast-to-coast bike ride in 45 days. And at the age of 72 and his son's age of 54, they were still competing. That's an incredible story of family love and perseverance. Dick Hoy persevered because he loved his son. And if we're going to persevere in this race that we're running, it's because we have love for the Lord who gave himself for us. And fourth, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. And so we are encouraged, commanded, implored to fix our eyes upon Jesus, lest we grow weary and lose heart. You see, in an endurance run, it's easy to get tired. It's easy to want to give up. It's easy to want to stop. 
Fix your eyes upon Jesus and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Don't be distracted. Don't look to the left or to the right, but keep your eyes focused on Christ who has already run the race and who is now seated at the right hand of the Father. On August 7th, 1954, during the British Empire and Commonwealth Games in Vancouver, British Columbia, England's Roger Bannister and Australian John Landy met for the first time in a one-mile run at the newly constructed Empire Stadium. Both men had broken the four-minute mile barrier that same year. Bannister was the first to break the four-minute mile, and he ran it in three minutes, 59.4 seconds, in Oxford, England. On June 21st, in Turku, Finland, John Landy became the new record holder with an official time of 3 minutes and 58 seconds. So on this day in British Columbia, as they were running this race, it was promoted as the mile of the century, and later would be called the miracle mile. It was not going to last more than four minutes. Here are the two fastest men in all the world. There are 35,000 people gathered to watch these two fastest men and to see who was going to win the run. The gun sounded and both men started to run and they ran step for step, side by side, until about 90 yards to the end. And at that moment, John Landy glanced back over his shoulder to see where Roger Bannister was. And when he glanced back over his shoulder, Bannister passed him and went on to win that race by 0.8 seconds. We remember the name Roger Bannister because he was the first person to break the four-minute mile. He was also the fastest man. But the name of John Landy escapes most of us. We don't know that name. We've never heard it. Had he not looked back, we might remember John Landy as winning that miracle mile. And I close with that story because I think it's so important for us not to look back, but to keep our eyes focused on Jesus all the time. Because as soon as we look back, we slow down. And the scriptures implore us, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, if we're going to complete this race. At this time, I believe we're going to have the praise team come back and have a song. If you need to make a commitment to follow the Lord today, I encourage you to do that. If you are turning to the left or to the right and your eyes aren't fixed on Jesus, I pray that today will be the day that you turn to him and that you remember that you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses as you run this race. You are not alone. Whatever your need, may Christ meet that today. Sing our next song.